that kid may just be tired that day. That kid may have had a fight with their best friend that day. Um, and so again, just giving them that autonomy to really lead those, those child directed sessions. Um, and a big part of, of a play therapist job is to trust that that child client knows what they need that day. Welcome back to You Need a Counselor podcast. My name is Julie Johnson. Uh, I am the president and founder here at Heart and Solutions. We are here in Iowa. We're still doing outpatient mental health counseling therapy services for children, teenagers, adults, uh, families, couples. Uh, and we're doing those in person in our offices and we're doing them in some schools and we're doing them through telehealth still. Uh, so if you're in Iowa, you can give us a call to get started with those outpatient mental health therapy services. Uh, or if you've got kiddos in your family, you can give us a call to get signed up with BHIS services. And I'm Krista Hunt. I am the vice president in charge of our BHIS department at Heart and Solutions. So BHIS stands for Behavioral Health Intervention Services. And that's the program where we go in home and work with children ages four through 18 on different behavioral skills. And we can also see them on telehealth right now as well. And this is our podcast, You Need a Counselor. So we are designed for people curious about counseling, but have barriers keeping them from experiencing the benefits of counseling. Our mission is to share stories about counseling, good, bad, and indifferent, and spread the message that everyone can benefit from mental health and behavioral health counseling services. Yeah, so we post on Sunday nights. So we just encourage you to batch up whatever task you hate doing. Uh, I will be putting away laundry as always on Sunday nights, making outfits for the week uh, for everybody in this house. Um, and then other tasks that you might hate doing. So uh, prepping food for the week. Uh, we have some food preppers uh, listening on Sunday nights. And then also like if you want to work out during that time, uh, that's a good time to do it. That gives you the entire week to get connected either with your counselor if you haven't seen them in a while or to get connected with one of our guests on the podcast that week. Uh, so Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Central. So we've got a long-awaited guest uh, on our podcast today. And as I introduce myself and Krista introduces herself, it, it just feels like, hey, Colleen, it's your turn. Um, <laughs> so uh, we've got Dr. Colleen Grote here with us today. Um, Colleen is a licensed mental health counselor here in Iowa. She's also a registered play therapy supervisor. Um, so she has that supervisor distinction uh, as a registered play therapist. Um, she's also the vice president in charge of therapy here at Heart and Solutions. And so when uh, when I'm on here talking about our therapy services, uh, that's all Colleen. She is in charge of that entire department across the state. Um, so Colleen, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Seems like we should have had you on way before. Um, I think we were kind of getting our legs under us before we decided mm, we're gonna <laughs> we interview you yet. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna share with other people. We needed to uh, to get a little bit of uh, episodes and footage underneath us. Um, so, Colleen, you have your PhD in counselor education and supervision, and that's with a focus on trauma and crisis response. Um, will you tell us about what it was like getting your PhD in counselor education and how has that helped you uh, in your current role supervising counselors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I don't, I don't know if I have a, a great story, like, oh, getting a PhD was always the goal, but post-grad school, um, I took just a, just a year or two, I was trying to think back, not, not too long, um, I was missing school, missing the educational setting, um, and so was fortunate enough to be able to enroll in the counselor education and supervision program at Walden, um, which allowed me to stay where I was at uh, geographically um, and continue to work pursuing that degree. Um, and like Julie said, I am the vice president in charge of therapy here. And one of the things that I really enjoy is being able to do that supervision piece and working with some of our newer th- uh, counselors and really helping them develop into to who they, they want to be as professionals. And so that educational background, just like uh, counselors go and get their master's and learn about different approaches to counseling and are able to identify with how they see themselves as a counselor and, and what clients they connect with. The, um, the supervision aspect of my PhD really taught me about different approaches to supervision and really helped me figure out who I wanted to be professionally at that next stage of, of my career um, and has been a really instrumental part to helping me connect with our providers here um, and and helping them grow, you know, kind of throughout their own process. So definitely lots, um, lots to bring to the table from that, that degree. I think one of the challenges for me was so many, um, so many of my peers in that program were focused on the counselor education piece of things. And so many of them were going on um, to teach um, usually at a graduate level um, and really going into that educational setting and helping counselors develop uh, throughout their master's program. And for me, um, while that's really exciting and important, it wasn't the most uh, the most exciting part for me. For me, it was that next step, that supervision piece. Um, but it's been really great to get to have those connections as well and really see that whole process on. Yeah, it's taking that practical application of what you were able to learn and uh, and really bringing it into the real world. I mean, when you're when you're using the skills that you developed in your PhD program, there are real clients involved in that, and there are real clients and real families and real people here in Iowa that are benefiting from the education and training uh, that you've done and that you've acquired over the years. Um, and while while, while in the academic setting, uh, you know, the same can be can be said in terms of, well, I'm teaching other people how to do it, right? And they're going to put that forward. Um, there is a much more direct line, a much more direct link uh, between, you know, the, the information that you are passing on and that you are helping other people to other, understand. And then that information is being able to be applied directly and you're getting to see uh, the benefit in that. So I think in, in education that happens fairly often. And in this field um, where people will go for the, the kind of practical, uh, nope, I'm doing this because I want to learn how to do it uh, the best way that I can versus I want to learn it so that I can teach other people how to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it fits so many of the the training modalities and opportunities that our counselors have, right? They're going to learn different types of therapeutic interventions and and receive different certifications 
Um, like you said, most often not so that they can then go teach those classes, but so that they can apply them with their clients. Um, and I really saw my degree in the same way. I knew going into that degree what I wanted to use it for and, and what that was going to look like for me. Um, and it's definitely something I'm, I'm so thankful that I've had the opportunity to, to explore. I think for, for some listeners, it might be, uh, sometimes it feels like, you know, removing that uh, green curtain to learn that our therapist also has a supervisor, right? That our our counselor also has a counselor, that our counselor also has a supervisor and that they're continuing to learn, that they're continuing to go to those trainings um, and learn this information. Uh, and I think it's so important um, that, you know, counselors that we're always talking about these things about uh, continuing to grow our skills and continuing to learn uh, from each other because and from supervisors because uh we we can't know everything and if we if we think that we do um then we're not potentially going to be uh that best version of ourselves for those clients so um i love that that we can share uh with others that yeah counselors have supervision counselors have get feedback on their sessions then counselors have doubts um about their sessions and interventions sometimes uh and that they consult with other people uh in a professional way so that they make sure that um that they're doing their very best for those clients what was something that uh that you learned through that process of uh getting that phd in counselor education and supervision that that maybe was surprising to you? I think it really speaks to, to what you were just talking about, right? For me, it was that normalization or that validation of like, we don't all have all of the answers and, and here's where it's at. And the more into this field that I become, right? I think the easier it gets sometimes to step back and really see that. Um, but at the time that I started my PhD program, I was a relatively new counselor as well. Um, I wasn't, wasn't fully licensed yet. You know, so I, I was less than two years into, to my clinical practice. Um, and so for me, it really was just kind of learning and seeing, we don't have to know it all. And even if I know a lot about one thing, I may not about something else and really being able to see from the standpoint, how to help somebody else navigate that and how to help um, counselors navigate that it's okay and that we may have additional skills in one area, but not in another, um, and that that process isn't linear. Um, and so I don't know if that was necessarily new information to me, but it's something that definitely I was really grateful for the amount of time that was put into to that information and how to to really kind of navigate that, not only for myself, but for for other counselors that I'm, I get to work with, um, because we are, we're, we're human, right? And as you were talking earlier, all I was thinking about is like, if I'm at the grocery store and I ask where something is, I don't necessarily need that one person I asked to know. I'd much rather them go ask somebody else for help than follow them around for 45 minutes while they, they lead me to it, right? We'll get there eventually. And, and I think all, you know, counselors in general have a skill set that will help clients grow and make change as they put that work into it. But if there is a tool or a resource or, or a specific type of therapy that's going to get them there in a more efficient or effective way, 
we want them asking about those. We want them seeking supervision um, and not feeling afraid to do so. Yeah, it definitely, um, (laughs) they say the more you know, the more you know that you don't know, right? (laughs) And and that was my experience too, where where what you're saying just really resonates because uh, feeling like as I learn more about uh, the the research, right, that we put all of our, um, our faith in sometimes, right? And then learning about those research methods and going, okay, when they say theories, they mean theories. <laughs> um, and that uh, in, in, in some ways it was terrifying to know that like, okay, nobody actually knows anything. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Um, but also in, in another way, it was so freeing to know, but, but these are the things that we have, that we all kind of as a society agree um, that if we use this method, that this information that we can rely on it. Um, and so being able to, to do that, uh, it, it sounds like was very beneficial um, to you in learning, like, these are some ways, these are those shortcuts, right, that, that get me there faster, um, and get my, my uh, team there faster. So I think that's, that is awesome. So some of those uh, modalities that you talked about uh, learning those different ways of working with people. Um, so you're a registered play therapist uh, and you're also a registered play therapy supervisor. Tell us about what that means and what what is play therapy? Yeah, um, play therapy is such a beneficial tool and resource um, and weight. You know, I think sometimes we're like, oh, it's a way to work with kids. Play therapy isn't, isn't limited by age. And so um, play therapy, you know, at its purest is a different way to, to communicate with individuals really by using toys and other mechanisms that don't need necessarily verbal communication. Um, and so while most often we're using it with, with younger children, it can be incredibly beneficial for adolescents and families and even adults. Um, and there's various methods of play therapy, right? So um, thinking about how to approach that work and really using play, which is the natural language of children. Um, I was, I have to laugh because one of my favorite examples is just from from my house, but um, after the derecho, it was a a good while after the derecho, probably a year. Um, And my daughter and her friend were playing and they were playing some you know, what sounded like a terrible game to, uh, to my husband. And they were like talking about storms and derechos and they were doing all of this stuff. Um, and he interjected and he did it like from the most loving place of like, stop that. Why are you doing that? And my, my play therapist brain was like, no, like you can't stop that from happening. Like something's going on. They need, they need to do this. Um, but we see the time, right. We see children, um, acting things out or playing games about difficult life situations or even typical life situations, right? If we think about development and getting left out with friends, um, it's not uncommon for kids to, you know, have their toys fighting and trying to make space for one another. Um, and transferring that from, from at home to, to the therapy office really just provides an opportunity for us as, as the play therapist to support that child's play. And so 
Um, we may not be interjecting. We may not be telling them what to do. I may not even know what they're doing some of the time and that's okay. Um, what I'm letting them know is I'm paying attention to you. I see what you're doing and what you're doing is okay to do in here. Um, it provides them a safe place to, to do all of that, um, to, to act out at whatever it may need with the tools that we provide them in the playroom. Um, so that we can then start to make sense of those themes and start to give them a safe therapeutic space um, to work on that the same way we would with an adult, right? An adult comes in and they're, they're able to talk about their experience. We're going to, to talk um, with the child uh, by using play um, rather than our words. And eventually that play is going to change and it's going to shift. Um, so again, just like an adult may come in one day and say, hey, Thanks. You know, we've been talking about this a lot. I'm feeling a lot better today. I don't need to talk about this. I'm going to talk about work instead. Um, we see those shifts in the playroom as children work through the issues that have, uh, have started, you know, have brought them to therapy in the first place. Um, so that's really what we're, we're looking for and supporting those kids through that, um, that therapeutic process in a, in a different way. I like what you said about you know, sometimes we don't know what they're, <laughs> what they're doing. Um, and, and just like with working with adults, sometimes we're like, where is this conversation going? And we don't know. And I, and I love that we don't have to know. Um, it just, it just is what it is. And you highlighted that, that the, you know, that main piece of like, whatever it is that you are doing child, uh, is what you're doing, <laughs> you know, and I'm watching you do it. And I'm interacting with you if you want me to, and I'm not, if you don't want me to. And, uh, and it allows children that, I mean, where else, even, even my own child, I think about this often, I think where else can she really just freely play? Um, because even when she's at, she's at, you know, summer camp right now, uh, for the day at the YMCA. And it's like, even there where it's like all about, I mean, it's not school, right? It's just about playing. But even when she's on the playground at recess there, um, or they're playing with kitchen stuff, she still is going to have, uh, be inhibited by the other children that want to play what they want to play. Right. And are trying to project onto her and include her in their game. And, uh, and the teachers that are like, Oh, well, we need to play nice. Right. And we need to share and we need to like, don't have your dolls decapitate each other, right? And stuff like that. Um, we're, we're limited by that stuff. And so where else can we really have that full range of expressive play uh, other than in the counseling setting? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head of like, there are, there's, there's limits just because of social norms, right? We're going to, as, as adults are going to interject and stop play, um, that doesn't fit kind of with, with social expectations. Um, and another thing for, for those listening that maybe are considering play therapy for their child or have a child currently in play therapy. Um, I think one thing that I see a lot from, from really well-intended caregivers and parents in the playroom is sort of that social norm of like, I want to show this therapist, how smart my kid is, right? Or what my kid can do. And one thing that really is so different, right? When I'm playing with my own children at home, I'm integrating some educational pieces, right? We may count the number of sheep at the farm, or we may talk about that the barn is red, 
as a play therapist, I, I don't care, right? Like that's not my intention with them. And I trust that your child is smart. And I believe you that you interact with your child and that you guys work on those things. Um, but this is the child's space to not have to, to perform. Um, they really get to come in and it really can, it, uh, it really can disrupt and inhibit that play therapy process when we're now asking them to do things. And so um, it's a big shift um, and I feel it as a parent, um, but the child, it doesn't need to show off their skills. For, now, if the child chooses to, if the child wants to count for us, that's great. That's wonderful. They're welcome to, um, but it's not an expectation of their play. If they call something by a different name or they mislabel something. Um, you know, if they call a cow a horse, I'm calling that cow a horse for the rest of the session because that's what it is for that child. And it does, it creates a space for them um, to be 100% authentic to what, who they are and what they need that day. Yeah. And I love how you identify that it's, it's not a child's play one day is not that child in a, in a session, it's what that child needs that day, that week and that month and that moment, um, and how it can be so different from session to session or week to week or year to year. Um, and it's just, it's that, that freedom, um, for that child to be able to do whatever it is that they need to do. Absolutely. Right. We give in therapy, we give adults that same autonomy, right? We may be working on a really intense issue, but one day the adult may came, come in and say, Hey, I need to pause this because I just lost my job or I just had a, a breakup. Um, and we're going to give them that space to tell us, yes, this is what you need that day. And play therapy can look the same, right? We may have days that we're really, really working. That kid may just be tired that day. That kid may have had a fight with their best friend that day. Um, and so again, just giving them that autonomy to really lead those, those child directed sessions. Um, and a big part of, of a play therapist job is to trust that that child client knows what they need that day. Trust is, it's such a big part of it. Trusting the process, trusting the child, um, trusting ourselves that like, we are doing enough right? Like as the counselor that, uh, that it, it is okay to not feel like we're doing things, um, in the session because we are by, by not doing the things that again, socially, right. We might, uh, if it's, if it's our child playing with another child, we might say like, Nope, don't take that toy from that. You know, like, why don't you ask that child if they will share things like that? Um, and so sometimes that uh, just that conditioning can kick in and we feel like, oh my gosh, maybe I should have said, you know, put clothes back on the doll, right? <laughs> maybe I should have, uh, have led that in a different way or asked the right question. And, uh, and it really does all come down to, like you said, like trust, trusting that child to be able to lead, uh, that session and process for themselves. Um, I think it's, and awesome. I, I think we really can underestimate how much children know what they need. Um, I'm thinking back to years ago, right. And I had I'd worked as a young child and done kind of your typical non-directive play therapy, um, very child led. Um, and in that we do a lot of tracking, right. Which is just what you said. It's me being present. It's me kind of telling the child what I see them doing so that they know that I'm paying attention. Um, this child 
aged somewhat and, and a couple of years went by and we weren't necessarily doing a lot of non-directive work anymore. We were kind of gearing more towards a, a traditional talk therapy route. They were old enough um, that they, they wanted that. And then they had a very significant life change and it was, it was a very traumatic event. And this now adolescent came and said, Hey, remember that time that you, we went in the playroom and you just told me all the things I was doing. Can we do that? And we went back to an incredibly non-directive tracking session for weeks. Um, I would not have known that that was what that, that child needed at that time. They were, you know, by all standards too, too old for, you know, for that, um, that type of intervention. And it was 100% what they, they needed. Um, and so as therapists, um, we are open to that. Um, and, um, and for, you know, for those listening that are with a therapist, don't be afraid to say, this is what I need. Um, and even if that's not the, the direction or the route that you feel like you're currently on, um, because it, it can be so beneficial, uh, to take those, those steps in a different direction at times. Wow. I love that because as an adult play therapy can be so beneficial and we can, we can express things, uh, through play that we otherwise might not be able to do through words. Um, because sometimes words just aren't enough. We just, we can't, we just can't do it, um, in the same way that we can fully, uh, express ourselves through play. And, um, and what a beautiful invitation for adults, uh, to be able to mm-hmm. say as well, or older children to be able to say, you know, if, if, play therapy is of interest to you, that it isn't just for kids, that it, uh, that play is that, um, first language for children, but it, it was our first language too. It was the way that we, uh, process the world, you know, and, and not really that long ago when it comes to the scope of a human life. We talk about too, you know, kind of talking to some of our adult listeners is some of our adults are coming in with trauma that happened when they were children. And one thing that we talk a lot about with play therapists is if something happened before the child had words to explain that. So they were one, they were two, they were three. Even as they get develop words, the brain often has difficulty using those words to explain that pre-verbal trauma or event. And so even as adults, if I'm talking about something that happened in my childhood, I probably can do a decent job explaining that, um, but really making those emotional connections that lead to healing oftentimes need to happen in a play-based approach. Um, That play-based approach is going to look different than it would if I was working with a four or five-year-old, but really being able to to go back to, like you said, our first language um, and give space to that event um, because that's where our brain was when it happened. There are so many um, bonding opportunities that play brings around as well um, when when we're focusing on or, or thinking about attachment. Um, there's so much attachment, uh, and bonding that happens through play, uh, as children and throughout our lives. Um, and I, I love that play therapy allows, um, play therapists to, uh, to facilitate some of those same, uh, bonding therapeutic bonding, um, methods through play therapy as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and we all need to play, 
right? I was thinking we did family photos the other day and um, our photographer is wonderful. I know her well. I have a good relationship with her. I trust her, uh, which is key to this story, but she was taking photos um, and she, she told them to make this really weird noise in my ear and we trust her. So he's like, okay, so he did it. And he's like, what was that? And she's like, I just needed you to laugh. Like I just needed it <laughs> genuine. Um, and we were playing, right? Like what she did in her own way is she had us play. Um, and you know, we all need those moments. Um, and, um, and I think sometimes, yeah, as adults, we forget. And as adults with children who are in play therapy, again, we forget, like they just need this space and play therapy can look so different. Um, there are so many wonderful approaches and theories of play therapy, um, that really can be catered to the specific needs of those children. Do we need some attachment building activities? Do we need to address a trauma? Do we need to work on some behavioral interventions? Um, and really being mindful of that, that play is still play. It just may look different based on uh, what, what we're working on and targeting in therapy. What are some examples of, you, you talked about the non-directive play therapy and what that looks like, uh, just the being present and naming things, using the same language, observing. Um, what are some other play therapy techniques that people might observe uh, in their children's sessions or uh, even as adults as they uh, engage in that in therapy? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple, you know, kind of the two main camps, if we break them down, right, are directive and non-directive. So like, like you said, Julie, we touched briefly on that non-directive approach. If the child is going to come in, there's no questions asked, there's no rules given, um, and we're doing whatever that child wants to engage in that day at that moment. Um, a directive approach begins anytime that, that we ask a question or we prompt a behavior. So I may be doing a non-directive session, but if I need to, or choose to ask a question that becomes a directive session. I'm directing that play in one way or another. So it can look really small like that. Of I'm maybe something happened and I want to guide you towards a certain toy that day. Um, directive can look much more intentional of, Hey, I have this activity planned for us and we're going to do this, this intervention today. A lot of times, you know, things like expressive arts interventions. So drawing, painting, um, kind of those creative type things can be a form of play therapy as well as things like sand tray, right? We, so um, a lot of adults may be most familiar with sand as a form of play. Bibliotherapy is our fancy word for reading books, right? And so working with, um, with stories and I like, I like bibliotherapy a lot, especially with children who may have experiences where they feel like they're the only one um, who's that event. And so being able to show characters and situations that can help them maybe not feel so isolated. Um, and so we may see some of that. And then there's other even more specific forms um, of play therapy, right? So things like TheraPlay or PCIT, which can be um, really beneficial in building um, attachments and really working on structured types of interaction between a caregiver and a child. Um, and those require additional training outside of play therapy, 
right? Any, any registered play therapist that you're taking your child to has an extra 150 hours or um, hours of CEUs and trainings in the field of play therapy. It's bare minimum um, that it's 150 additional play therapy specific hours um, in addition to extra supervision and extra clinical practice with, with children. Um, and then again, some of those are in excess of that. Um, and so um, it really is a very intentionally uh, kind of education intense uh, training because we're not talking and we need to understand those behaviors and those those sometimes really hard to notice changes um, in the child uh, within the playroom. Yeah, I think without, um, and I, I love that you bring up the, the distinction of the extra training. When somebody is a registered play therapist, you uh, sometimes the word play therapist gets attached to children therapists that work with children. Um, and so sometimes even we'll get phone calls and people will say, I need a play therapist. And what they mean is sometimes they do mean a registered play therapist, but sometimes they mean I have a five-year-old and I need a therapist who will work with that five-year-old. Um, and so I, I like that you're, you're explaining that distinction between a registered play therapist has gone through that extensive training, does have that certification um, to be able to understand the nuances of that, that kind of work. Um, and I think especially important in that kind of work, because uh, just like, so in, in uh, psychotherapy, when we're doing talk therapy, maybe with adults or an older teenager, one thing that we, we know as counselors is that we don't want to interrupt, right, or uh, impede the processing of our client unless it's intentional, unless it's with intent. But with play, it's so easy to do that and not even realize it. Um, and so, you know, we, we might think, well, this is what we do with children is we say, oh, well, how did that make you feel? Right. Or like, well, what's that guy's problem? Or, and even just saying, what's that guy's problem, right? We've now named a gen, we've now gendered the object or character. Um, we've now said it's a guy versus a boy versus a unicorn, right? Like we've, we've named these things for, for this child. We've disrupted that processing and we might not even know it. We think we're just being curious and, and open in those discussions. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of providers are really skilled providers at doing therapy with toys, right. Or doing, doing, um, but yeah, when we're looking for that registered play therapy credential, um, we're talking about somebody who may be in the crux of getting their registered play therapy credential, right. We have providers who are actively working towards that. And so just being mindful of, of what that training looks like, what skills they possess, um, and asking questions about what type of play therapy, um, just like not everybody is a great fit for all, um, all counselors, right? Somebody might have an approach that doesn't align with what somebody's looking for or what they, they need in therapy. Um, it's okay too with play therapy to say, oh, I was really looking for somebody who did this type or more of this. Um, and that process can change throughout time as well. Like I was talking about earlier, you know, children grow up. Um, unfortunately I keep trying to stop mine, right. But kids grow up, um, sometimes different life events happen. So I've had clients before that I was working with in a very non-directive way to attend to, you know, what on paper were some minor 
issues. We were working through some adjustments and things at home. And then a very traumatic event happened. And because of the circumstances around that, we needed to be very directive. So we really had to make an intentional switch. Um, and then later on, we went back and we're dealing with some other things. And so just knowing that that process isn't always going to make sense from the outside um, and, and being able to have those conversations of kind of why we're doing this. And also, also knowing that sometimes the update at the end of a session is going to be like, yeah, they, they, they worked really hard today. Um, and that may be it. Um, and we don't always have, you know, these, these life altering updates at the end of session. Um, but we'll get there. And, and like you said earlier, it's trusting that process, even though that process can look like we're just hanging out and playing all, all day. Um, we are, and that's important work. I love that. Um, because yeah, from, from a parent perspective or guardian perspective, um, watching a play therapy session or hearing an update of a play therapy session. Um, if we don't have that understanding that, nope, these are intentional interventions that are being done. Uh, it can seem like, well, I just brought them in for 45 minutes and they played with a doll and then they did a puzzle, right? Like it, it can feel that way sometimes um, without having that understanding. So I think it's always just so important um, that, you know, the work that you're doing and sharing that information with other people who uh, can then, you know, have either themselves or, or their family members benefit from these different modalities. Um, so I know that you also do trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And so can you tell us about that? I know you talked about uh, doing some trauma-focused work even within the, the play therapy, um, but tell us about that cognitive behavioral piece of it. Yeah. Um, it's one of my favorite um one of my favorite approaches when I need a really structured approach, right? So it's almost in like vast contrast to a non-directive play therapy. Um, one thing that's important, sometimes I'll hear people say like, oh, I'm doing TFCBT. And they'll be like, oh, hold your client. And I'll be like, four. I don't really have a lot of cognitive skills at four that are going to lend us to make super big cognitive changes, right? So again, being really intentional of what are, what is, what is the purpose here? Um, but I love TFCBT for some of my older, uh, age clients, um, you know, really getting into like eight, nine, 10, um, and then adolescence as well, because it's a highly structured approach. Um, and one of the things that I, again, I really like about it is that it tip, you know, depending on nature of the trauma that we're focusing on, um, it can move fairly Quickly. And when I say quickly in therapy, right, it's all relative. Uh, but, you know, we can look at 16 to 20 week approach with this. And sometimes it takes longer. Um, but I like to be able to give those time domains, especially to some of the teenagers that I work with that are like, I don't want to be in therapy forever. Like, you don't have to. Um, and TFCBT, like I said, is highly structured. And so it moves through that, that model, the acronym is practice, right? But it, it walks us through the steps of providing psychoeducation and doing resourcing so that we can learn to control our reactions to things um, and, um, and allows us to have, again, that safe space to work through that difficult event. Um, but I love using it with children as well because it, it mandates, if you will, that they, they select 
a safe person in their life, typically a parent or caregiver, um, to share their narrative with. Um, and that narrative is going to look really different, right? If I'm working with an adult and we're doing some TFCBT, you may just write your narrative and read it with someone. Kids may create storyboards. We've done them with a sand tray. We've done all sorts of creative things that I, my brain would not have thought of, right? And, and that's okay because all we're asking them to do is get to a point. Um, and I, I use the word narrative because I think story sounds fake, right? So some people will say story, they're telling their, their story, um, but story sounds made up and all of their trauma is real. So they're sharing their narrative with, um, with that person in their life after we've got all of the steps to prep them to do so. Um, one of the things that is really important about an approach like that is that we're connecting those emotions with, with the facts or, or with, um, with that narrative. And so it's one thing for me to say, I was in a car accident. Okay. But what I'm, what my job is, as the therapist is the next time we go through that, I am going to interject and I wonder what that felt like. Right. So now my narrative reads, I was in a car accident and I felt scared. Um, and so we're starting to make those connections so that when we retell that, um, we're not just saying that kind of from a numb approach. Um, and I'll give you my favorite, my favorite antidote, right. Or my favorite kind of when I'm, ta- when I'm talking to parents about TFCBT, um, I always reference the wizard of Oz because this is, this is TFCBT in a nutshell is we, we prep them. We, we work them through all of their coping skills, all of their, their resources. And then we get to a point where we're doing this narrative and it's sort of like watching the wizard of Oz, um, is the first time that it happens and the monkeys come out and the big bad, witch is there, like, we don't know. And it's really, 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 really scary. And it totally catches us off guard and it's super scary. And we may have nightmares for a while and we don't really want to watch it again. And that's, that's our initial trauma. And then somebody says, let's watch the wizard of Oz again. Okay. Like, and you know, they're coming, but you don't quite remember when, cause you haven't seen it enough. And so you kind of can prep for it, but it still catches you off guard and it's still super scary. Um, and you know, and so that is, that is some of those flashbacks and some of those moments that we're reliving that. Um, and then if we continue to watch the movie over and over and over and over again, we get to a point where it could be playing in the room and I could be doing a task of my choosing. And so with TFCBT, we're never getting rid of the event that happened. We're never erasing those memories or forgetting about the trauma. We're learning to live with the trauma in the room so that if somebody comes and turns on the Wizard of Oz, I don't have to go into a panic. I don't have to freeze. I don't have to leave the room. I can continue my life while it's playing. And so that is really kind of how I explain like why we're doing this. And then that sharing piece is just as critical because some, some of my adolescents that I work with will be like, well, I just want to tell you. Yes, I appreciate that, right? But if you tell me your narrative and we're talking about the monkeys and the Wizard of Oz, and then all of a sudden you're at home one day and you say, hey, mom, hey, dad, about those monkeys, and they picture cute little monkeys at the zoo, their response is going to be, well, don't worry about that. That's no big deal. Like super cute. And they're not going to be able to validate what that experience is for you. And so we have to get everybody on the same page and share that experience. So um, so yeah, sometimes we get a little off course when I explain TFCBT. Um, but I think it's really critical that we enter that with an understanding that we can't magically make it go away. I wish, um, 
we can't, um, but we can learn to live with it playing in the room. That's beautiful. I, I love the the comparison that you brought with with the monkeys too, describing the monkeys and uh, tying it in with your your initial example of I was in a car accident, and that can mean a million, a trillion different things. Yeah. Um, and so when we say it to somebody else, uh, it it means whatever it means for them. And the person we said it to, depending on their experience, that that's what they're going to draw from, unless we are uh, able to do the work, do the prep work, uh, figure out what, how we want to and need to communicate what it actually is and paint those colors in to that drawing. You know, when I say I was in a car accident, I'm giving a, a frame, <laughs> I'm doing a, I'm giving a pencil drawing, right, to uh, somebody else. Um, but if I'm giving them a full painting of this car accident, um, then they can, they can understand it and they can help me and respond uh, to what I'm actually saying to them, as opposed to responding to what they're filling in to what I'm actually saying to them. Yeah. Um, that is beautiful. Uh, and I, I love the, the Wizard of Oz analogy. <laughs> um, my, it's, it's so, it's fitting. My, my daughter won't watch it. Um, but if she, <laughs> but if she did, right. I mean, there's the, the other nice thing about, about this analogy is that there are scary parts and upsetting parts of the Wizard of Oz, but there are also beautiful parts uh, mm -hmm. and exciting parts and uh, thrilling parts and, and, uh, and wonderful parts of that same movie. And mm -hmm. so uh, there are all of these different pieces of our narrative um, that we, we aren't always able to to explain or talk about, right, without having the the monkeys uh, take precedent of that situation. So um, I, I think it's just beautiful. And, uh, and I love that you use narrative that what a great distinction on why we use narrative instead of story. Um, because uh, a lot of times people say, well, I'm telling my story, right? I'm telling my story. And absolutely. Um, but again, the word story is pencil drawing and can, we can fill in while a story is Hansel and Gretel also, right. Or, or something else. So, um, yeah, that is beautiful. Wow. So what is it that got you interested in learning these, maybe these particular modalities or getting trained in play therapy, um, and play therapy supervision in particular, how did you get into these? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I've always liked working with kids. Um, I'll, I'll hang out with kids probably before adults most days, just in my general life. Um, but during my undergrad internship, I was fortunate enough to work, um, at, um, at a residential facility for kids ages 10 through 17. Um, and just really getting to see the needs that they had and how to approach mental health crises from a different standpoint. Um, and, and really just getting, there wasn't, there wasn't a ton of play therapy happening at that moment. I mean, I wasn't a part of like their therapy sessions and things like that, but it, just in general, I don't think it was, was quite where, where it is now. Um, so I, you know, again, I was fortunate to do that during undergrad, had another just kind of 
great happenstance during my graduate program that one of my professors was very passionate about play therapy and was able to get a class approved in play therapy during our grad program, which again is becoming more and more common, wasn't then. Um, so I was really fortunate that I was able to have that opportunity and that experience pretty early on. Um, and then my first, my first grown up job um, was doing therapy at, at an agency that only served individuals 17 and younger. Um, and so um, I was surrounded by individuals at that point who at minimum uh, were, were interested in working with kids. Um, and they actually had a TFCBT supervision group in addition to our our extra supervision. So I got to spend some time every week doing consultations strictly about that modality um, and was able to do a training specifically in that um, and then was able to to start kind of going to play therapy trainings and getting into that. So I, it was something that I've always been interested in. And I think part of it also was was right time, right place and the luck of like, oh, this is a real thing. And somebody in my life can walk me through the steps of doing this and somebody in my life can walk me through the steps of doing this. Um, and I'm, I'm really thankful for those opportunities, um, because becoming a registered play therapist isn't easy. Um, it's really not an easy process. Becoming a registered play therapy supervisor is not an easy process. Um, and I love that the association for play therapy makes that really difficult because it, it is a great gatekeeping system. Um, but I'm also hoping that that as a supervisor now, I can help other providers who are interested navigate that process because it is such a needed um, a needed approach to things. Um, but it's one that can be really intimidating, especially to some of our providers um, who are just kind of entering the field. It can sometimes just feel too daunting to start. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that I can, can make a difference in, in that process for those that, that want to explore that. Wonderful. And, uh, and Dr. Grote, you've got some trainings that are approved as, uh, play therapy trainings as well. Um, and you do live webinar trainings for those who are, uh, seeking that, uh, that, credentialing and seeking that educational piece. Um, and so we'll put your information on how people can sign up for information so that people can know how to sign up for those, uh, those trainings, because there's, there's, uh, such great information in those trainings. They're convenient because they're either live streamed, um, or recorded. Uh, but there's, there's a very, um, a wide variety of different topics and topics that, you know, that people might not always think about. Uh, you talked about um, your experience with your girls uh, after the derecho, um, which if you're not in Iowa, um, that is a land hurricane, um, which makes no sense, but that's what it is. Um, and, and you uh, offer a training that has to do with natural disasters and play therapy um, after natural disasters for children. Um, and, and that's something that is such a, a large need, um, but that I don't know that people would always think about uh, seeking training on. So uh, I just think it's, it's awesome. So we'll, we'll give that information too, so that people can find you for that. Yeah, we've got a mailing list so they can, can submit their information. We'll get them on that. We've got a couple other trainings coming up soon. And then like you said, some that are already pre-recorded and, and able to be accessed. 
Wonderful. So uh, Dr. Grout, if you could give uh, somebody on the fence about starting counseling for themselves or their child uh, a suggestion, what suggestion might you give them? Yeah, I, I think it's just making that phone call, right? Like it, it like um, I remember started with with a therapist one time. Like even as a provider, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to, and I almost blew off my first session. I literally, thanks to telehealth, like was able to pull over, and I made myself stop in a parking lot and have my first session. And I'm like, I'm a provider, like I should do this, uh, but it's scary and it's hard. And so I, I think really it's, it's taking that first step to pick up the phone, make that phone call and, and give yourself the permission to, to have that appointment because you deserve it. And, and giving that time to yourself to, to take that hour out of your week is so important. Absolutely. I love, I love that. I love all the modeling that, that is of, you know, counselors have supervisors. They also have therapists and sometimes their supervisors have therapists um, and their supervisors have supervisors, right? And, and people that they're continuing to learn from. Uh, it's, it's just awesome. Um, so thank you so much for being here and for sharing all of that information. Um, it has been uh, wonderful just being able to talk through those different modalities and, and hear your, uh, your narrative. I almost said story, um, but I'm going to say your narrative because uh, it's, it's very, very inspirational. I am Dr. Colleen Grote and I need a counselor. Awesome. Me too. So does Krista. Uh, we all, as you know, we all do. Uh, <laughs> So wonderful. If you are uh, in the state of Iowa, go ahead and give us a call at 800-531-4236 to get set up with uh, a counselor here in Iowa. Anywhere in Iowa, you can do telehealth sessions still on the computer or over the phone. Like Julie mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we post new episodes every Sunday at 5 p.m. Central. So save up whatever tasks you hate doing and listen to us while you run or uh, meal prep or do your laundry and help. Or we'll help you get connected with a counselor that week. Um, so if you have any questions for us, you can reach us on Facebook at You Need a Counselor Podcast or on our Instagram. You can send us a DM at You Need a Counselor Podcast there as well. So I'm Krista Hunt. And I'm Julie Johnson, and we need a counselor. And so do you. Bye.